2: For the third consecutive week, successful results of a COVID-19 vaccine trial were announced. And the latest, by Oxford and AstraZeneca, might just be the most important. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist. And today, we're exploring what the latest dose of vaccine news means for the fight against the pandemic.
3: It's a really important vaccine because it's cheap, it's easy to transport, and it's easy to make.
2: How did the scientists at the University of Oxford manage this feat in such a short amount of time?
4: We got the construct at the end of February to start making it, and we filled the vials, I think, on the 9th of April which is inconceivably quickly.
2: And if what we're seeing is light towards the end of the tunnel, what is waiting for us on the other end?
1: I think we'll be a little bit like the roaring 20s after the 1918 pandemic in our century.
2: It's been almost a year since the first reports of a new highly infectious respiratory virus came out of the Chinese city of Wuhan. Soon after, the genetic code was released for SARS-CoV-2, as it is now known. For scientists around the world, the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine was on. Today, three major drug companies in Europe and America have released initial data from large-scale trials. Suddenly, after so long, there is hope.
3: So the results we heard this week were of an interim analysis of a large trial of AstraZeneca's vaccine made with Oxford University.
2: Natasha Loader is our health policy editor.
3: There were 23,000 people included in the data set in Britain and in Brazil. And what was found was that when they were given two doses of this vaccine about a month apart, the vaccine was 70% effective. And also, it may reduce transmissibility of the virus as well. So if you get the vaccine, you seem to be less likely to transmit it to others.
2: But something more complicated is going on with that efficacy result.
5: The good news, by the way, about the, the regimen that works the best is that it only uses half the dose of vaccine for the first shot. So we can vaccinate more people faster.
2: Pascal Sorio is the chief executive of AstraZeneca.
5: With the appropriate dosage regime, people will get a 90% protection. No severe cases were seen and no hospitalisation. So it's a very, very attractive uh, vaccine, I must say.
3: It turns out that a group of volunteers were given only half a dose initially, followed by a full dose. And When this group were analysed, it was found that there was a 90% efficacy rate for this vaccine. The difficulty with this, a bit of a statistical wrinkle, is that it's a subgroup analysis. And because the scientists didn't predefine this group as one that they were looking for in the data, statistically speaking, we can't place a whole deal of confidence on it. Also, if you take out the group that were responding at a rate of 90%, then what you're left with is another group that showed 62% efficacy. To my mind, given the way the trial was designed to give data at this point, I think we just have to accept that the valid number is the 70%, but be aware that there are some interesting potential wrinkles in the data.
2: And why do you think that is happening?
3: This vaccine is comprised of a harmless virus into which a bit of genetic material from the the virus that causes COVID-19 has been inserted. And the idea is that you infect people with this harmless virus. It's a cold virus and it doesn't replicate, but it just inserts this viral genetic material. Now, The problem with using a viral vector to deliver viral material is the body may mount an immune response against the vector itself. And so if you give a large initial dose of this virus, it may be that not only does the body see the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, but it also sees the mild harmless virus as well. And then when you get the second dose you've developed immunity to the vaccine itself. So the theory is, is that by giving a smaller initial dose, you just don't get that immunity developing. And then that's how you get a sort of really strong reaction the second time that you see the vaccine.
2: Even still, shouldn't a result of 70% efficacy seem disappointing? compared to the results of previous vaccines, which were up to 95% effective?
3: That's a really hard question to answer. I mean, although on the face of it, those numbers seem comparable, unfortunately, they really aren't. AstraZeneca, for example, they actually tested people weekly to see if they were infected with COVID. That isn't what Pfizer and Moderna did. They relied on people noticing that they had some kind of symptoms of COVID and kind of ringing them in and then getting tested. So, unfortunately, we just can't compare it. Hopefully, when the data comes in, we'll be able to firm up exactly what the relative efficacies of these different vaccines are. What I would also say, and this is very important, if I was offered any of these vaccines, I would happily take them because they would provide me with an enormous degree of protection.
2: Last week, we talked about the Moderna and Pfizer results, What makes this latest vaccine so important?
3: It's a really important vaccine because it's cheap, it's easy to transport, and it's easy to make. And the global capacity to make it is huge. And so we need it. In fact, we need all these vaccines. Pam Cheng is the head of operations and information technology at AstraZeneca. And she's figuring out just how many doses can be manufactured. So excluding our sub-licensed partners, we will have approaching 200 million doses of actives. So this is the drug substance by the end of 2020, and more than 700
4: million doses of active by the end of Q1 globally. These actives would then be formulated and filled into vials. So as you can see, we have a uh, robust supply chain um, that's capable of manufacturing at scale. We expect the vaccine is stable at normal refrigerator conditions at 2 to 8 which will significantly make the supply chain logistics much simpler and easier.
2: Okay so that's distribution but there's still some way to go before that. So what happens next?
3: For the Oxford vaccine they've said that they're going to but they should have done so by now submit their data for a publication for peer review. I'm hoping that the other two producers will follow suit. We need to see the data from these trials. I think this is really important for transparency, for confidence in these vaccines.
2: And they'll be sending this data off to the regulators?
3: Yes, when it comes to the regulators, the scientists who work within the regulators will have a chance to scrutinise the data that's been collected much more closely. At the start of the month, I spoke to Andrew Pollard, director of the Oxford Vaccine Group, about this very process.
5: Our job is not to prove that The Oxford vaccine works, but to assess whether it works, we actually need a good, careful scientific process to make the assessment of of any vaccine that goes forward. The steps after the first thing is to do a regulatory submission. That process has to be collating large amounts of data, and then the regulator has to review that. And that will take some time. We all want our regulators to scrutinise the data very carefully.
3: I know everybody wants to talk about distribution and they all want to talk about who's going to get it and when it's going to happen. But it's really, really important to remember that although it seems like the vaccines happened really quickly, what's really happened is that the stages have just been kind of compressed. And unfortunately, going through the regulatory data even if they attend to it promptly, it's just going to take a few weeks and it's going to take consideration. And we need to also accept that the regulators may come up with an answer that we don't like. The regulators have to be able to say, do you know what, actually, we want some more trials. We just need to sit tight and really trust the regulators to do a very thorough job looking at the efficacy and safety. Natasha, for now, thank you. Thank you so much, Ken.
2: You can read our full analysis of the trial results from all three vaccine candidates by subscribing to The Economist. Also in this week's science section, we bid farewell to a very special telescope and investigate why car seats may be reducing birth rates in America. Yes, car seats as contraception. Babbage listeners can find a very special introductory subscription rate by heading to economist.com slash podcast offerer. And as always, the link is in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them, Ken sent you. Coming up, how to make a vaccine. And might this mark the beginning of the end of the pandemic?
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: The recent vaccine results are a step in the right direction, yet many more challenges remain on how to inoculate the world. But let's take a step back, right back to January this year. Natasha Loder has been
3: investigating how to make a vaccine. For most of the year, vaccine nerds like me have been excitedly watching for any news from Oxford University. First human trials in Europe of a coronavirus vaccine has begun
4: in Oxford in what is a highly significant moment. That
5: we were aiming for roundabout late third quarter, early fourth quarter of this year to get a first read on efficacy.
3: In July, I spoke to the inventor of Oxford's COVID vaccine, Sarah Gilbert. Sarah Gilbert. Do you think you'll be first to get to a regulator with results?
4: Well, that's looking like a distinct possibility at the moment because we have...
3: AstraZeneca is likely to apply to regulators in the coming weeks when it finishes assembling data from its trials. The man in charge of those trials is Andrew Pollard.
5: We initiated uh, the first trial on the 23rd of April. Since then, we've vaccinated over 20,000 people across the different countries.
3: But it wasn't as simple as just jabbing all of those people.
5: There's a lot of follow-up to do because people get booster doses of the vaccine and then we take blood tests from them regularly during the course of the trials. And we stay very closely in touch with them to check how they are and to find out what's going on with the progress. So for example, here in the UK, we are asking our trial volunteers to swab themselves every week. So we get 10,000 swabs a week from them and we we communicate with them every week about that. So there's just a lot of activity in running trials and to sort of service the operation once it's initiated. I have to say it is a bit crazy at the beginning with all the vaccinations, but it's a different crazy later on.
3: There have been many unsung heroes in the huge effort to create this vaccine.
0: I'm Theresa Lam, I'm an associate professor at the Jenner Institute. Um, I lead a program of research into developing vaccines against outbreak and emerging pathogens. I tend to start early. So, for example, today I woke up at about 3.30, 4 a.m., did about an hour's work because I couldn't sleep, then got up properly at around half six, came into work for about eight And then I'll leave today somewhere around six o'clock and probably take a couple of hours off and then start again till 10, 11 o'clock tonight.
3: This has been a reality for Oxford's vaccine researchers for almost a
0: year. It was early January. I think it was the 10th or 11th. It was a Friday night and the sequence came into my inbox. One of my collaborators emailed it to me. I spent that weekend co-designing the vaccine with another friend and collaborator And then we ordered the sequence, the part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that we needed to make the vaccine on the Monday, Tuesday of that week. And then we just ran with it.
3: The idea for the vaccine was to deliver a piece of the SARS-CoV-2 virus into the body by packaging it inside another harmless virus. The team had used a chimp virus to make vaccines in the past. To make the COVID-19 vaccine... They packaged a piece of the genetic material for the spike protein inside this vector. It's a bit like writing a message on a piece of paper and then putting it inside an envelope.
0: So we had a platform vaccine technology that we could work with relatively quickly. We had experience developing a vaccine against another coronavirus that we'd taken into phase one clinical trials. So we could put both of those pieces of information together and look at SARS-CoV-2, identify the part of that virus we thought might mediate a good immune response, so we were able to generate a vaccine relatively quickly.
3: One of the unique things about Oxford University is they have small-scale manufacturing equipment to make vaccines on site. So you've got a big tank in there at the back
4: somewhere. (laughs) They're normally actually not tanks, they're quite small boxes. (laughs) We only do small-scale stuff here.
3: Kath Green is the head of the Clinical Biomanufacturing Facility at Oxford University.
4: We do the preparation, we take the ideas from the scientists at the Jenner for vaccines, prove that you can make them a small scale, prove that we can get all the testing set up to make sure that the quality is good enough, and then make a reasonably large batch. But for us, that's only 10 litres, enough to make 500 or 1,000 doses.
3: OK, let's start at the beginning. Can you give me a flavour of how a vaccine's made from your perspective?
4: So the kind of vaccine that we make here is a chimpanzee adenovirus vectored vaccine. So it's based on a virus which was first identified in chimpanzees, but that's related to a virus that you and I would get that would cause common cold-like symptoms, so a relatively minor virus. And what the scientists at the Jenner did is modify that to make it extra safe and also modify it so it delivers a little bit of the genetic material of the disease that we're trying to combat. So in this case, it delivers a little bit of the coronavirus genome. And so what I need to do in my manufacturing team is I need to make lots and lots and lots of copies of this chimpanzee virus because that is the vaccine. So I can take a small amount of the vaccine that's manufactured by the research scientists and then I can amplify it. We think of it like the starter of a sourdough culture. We're working under really, really rigorously controlled conditions to grow this starter culture of vaccine that comes from the... And then we take that and we amplify it again, make more, and then we amplify it again and make more. And eventually we then end up with a product that we can sterilise and check, and that will be the first batch of the vaccine that goes into our clinical trials. But also that then is the starter culture for an even bigger batch that we manufacture via a company elsewhere.
3: In the years before COVID-19, the team had been planning for how they would make a pandemic vaccine. For them, it was only a question of when a pandemic happened, not if. Yet still, COVID-19 took them by surprise.
4: In all of our planning for disease X, it didn't cross our mind that if we were ever going to be making the vaccine for the pandemic, we would be in the pandemic. It didn't cross our mind the fact that public transport would be shut and you wouldn't be able to get toilet paper and there's no childcare and our staff would be sick and we can't meet with each other because we have to be two metres apart and there are no flights out of Italy. So our first large-scale batch was made in Italy. We had to charter a private jet to get vaccine from Italy to Oxford because there were no flights between London and Rome. And this was inconceivable in our planning, which sounds crazy, but I think we just had no idea of what it would really mean in practice.
3: What have been the best moments this year?
4: So there's a thing called the release. Getting the stuff in the vials. Did it fastest we've ever done it. We got the construct at the end of February to start making it. And we filled the vials, I think, on the 9th of April, which is inconceivably quickly. Everybody was doing double shifts. Nobody had had a weekend. We had just worked flat out to just compress the time. There's just that great feeling of, whew, relief. We promised something and we delivered it. That day I told my team, I said, look, I asked you to do an impossible thing. And you stepped up and you delivered an impossible thing. And I was really proud of them. And normally we'd open a bottle of champagne and some cake, but we were in a lockdown. So we couldn't even celebrate, which was really hard. And then we started the vaccinations two weeks later and that first day of the vaccinations there was a Facebook report that our first volunteer had died, which was just a made-up fake news story, which was awful. Imagine being in that family and you know that your daughter's gone to volunteer for the trial and you see it all over the press that your daughter is dead. Disgusting. But from then on it was just madness because the trial had started. So we didn't get a chance to breathe and relax and do it.
0: I genuinely got very excited when it went into somebody's arm in the first instance. So that was exciting, but nerve wracking at the same time, if that makes sense. Waiting
4: for those results, I definitely was waiting up late for those.
3: But the hard work has paid off.
4: We told everybody that we were doing it. And I think that made GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, I think it made everybody else think, oh my God, if these dudes in Oxford University are claiming they're going to be able to have a vaccine ready for deployment at the end of this year. They're going to beat us unless we also step up. So I think the fact that we kind of laid down the gauntlet and said, no, we think you can do this. And now it means we will have a vaccine here faster because we were brave enough to kind of set the challenge early.
3: Teresa, what are you going to do when this is all over? Take
0: a holiday. You didn't even need to finish that question. I'm taking a holiday.
2: Natasha, this year has been a whirlwind for vaccine developers. How do you think the pace of development will change the way scientists will do this in the future?
3: I think it's been a wonderful year for vaccine development. The technologies we've developed for these vaccines, whether it's mRNA technology, whether it's the adenovirus vector, they're going to be very important in our ability to respond to pandemics in the future. I think the mRNA platform in particular is going to be used to create other sorts of vaccines like cancer vaccines as well. And I think that people will look at vaccines in new ways. I think they were seen as a sort of yesterday's technology by some of the big pharma companies and they're looking much more interesting and exciting for the future of biotech and pharma. The news of effective COVID-19 vaccines has been eagerly anticipated. Since March, vaccines have been heralded as the key to unlock the resumption of normality. But is our normality really on the horizon?
1: We still have other challenges. We have to manufacture millions of doses of these vaccines. We have to distribute them, and we have to persuade the public to accept the vaccine to get to at least 50% of people being vaccinated. Meanwhile, the virus is still spreading among us.
3: Nicholas Christakis is a professor of social and natural science at Yale. In his new book, Apollo's Arrow, he's been looking at how the pandemic is fundamentally changing the way we live.
1: So from my perspective, either way, 2022 is going to mark a landmark year in the course of this pandemic. By 2022, either we will have reached herd immunity because we have vaccinated a minimum threshold of people, or we will have reached it naturally because the germ would have infected that percentage. COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes it, it has something known as an r naught of three. And for that, technically, the herd immunity threshold is 66%. But for various other network science reasons, the ultimate attack rate of the virus will probably be lower, probably between 40 and 50%. Absent a vaccine, 40 to 50% of the population will become infected with this pathogen. And so right now, in the United States and in Europe, probably only about 12% of people have been exposed. So we're only about a quarter of the way to herd immunity. We're not at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. We're just at the end of the beginning.
3: So Nicholas, you talk in your book about how when we immunise the elderly, that's going to reduce the death rate, but it's not going to have as big an impact on the chains of transmission and therefore the course of the epidemic. Can you talk to me a little bit more about why this is?
1: Ultimately, when we have enough doses of the vaccine, we won't have to make difficult choices about who to vaccinate. But initially, we're going to want to decide as a society to whom should we give the initial doses. First, of course, we'll give them to healthcare workers and first responders, that's relatively uncontroversial. But then the question is, who's next? So one strategy might be, let's give the vaccine to those most at risk of death, for example, the elderly or the chronically ill. But from a public health point of view, that might or might not be the wisest course of action because the elderly you see are at the end of the transmission chain. The disease is brought home to them. So from a public health point of view, it might make much more rational sense to vaccinate the working age people, because by vaccinating them, we might prevent more deaths in the society. And people are debating right now how to balance some of those ideas.
3: If we think about the phases of the pandemic, you talk about the current phase being the acute phase, where our focus really is on controlling the spread, and then a phase where humanity is coping with the fallout from the pandemic. When might we expect normal life to resume?
1: Well, we're all looking forward to the return of normal life, but I don't think it will be soon, unfortunately. So 2022 will mark the end of what I would consider to be the immediate impact of the pandemic. But life is not going to instantly return to normal. And if you look at the history of epidemics, it usually takes one or two years for people to recover from the social, psychological, and economic shock. And furthermore, while this pandemic disease might kill about 1% of the people that develop symptoms from it, perhaps as many as 5% will have some kind of long-term disability. So I think that period, what I call the intermediate period, will last a couple of years until roughly 2024. And then in 2024, the post-pandemic period, in my opinion, will begin. When epidemics strike, a lot of things happen in societies. People become more religious, for example. They become more abstemious. They save their money they don't spend. They become risk-averse. And I think all of those things will begin to reverse around 2024. People will relentlessly seek out social interactions in nightclubs and pubs and restaurants and political gatherings. They will start spending money liberally. There might be some sexual licentiousness. There will be a joie de vivre and an increasing risk-taking. And so I think that will be a little bit like the roaring 20s after the 1918 pandemic in our
3: century. Oh God, that's absolutely fascinating. So your work at the Human Nature Lab focuses on how humans interact, um, connection and contagion, and the consequences for the spread of not just pathogens, but also of ideas and behaviours. What do you think are the most interesting long-term impacts from coronavirus?
1: So at the turn of the last century, there were tuberculosis epidemics around the world, including in the United States. And there was a big anti-spitting campaign to stop spitting in public. But when the 1918 pandemic struck, this really accelerated and people started to get rid of spittoons that were in restaurants. So there were these little brass buckets that you could spit in, in all these public places. And these were rightly seen as unsanitary and they were eliminated. After the pandemic was over, the spittoons never came back. And that's a small example, but I think there'll be many examples like that. One of them is gonna be, for example, working from home or business travel. It's possible we'll stop shaking hands. I mean, the Western tradition of shaking hands is not universal, right? Many other societies greet each other without physical contact. One of the, in some ways, a bit more disturbing potential long-term consequences is the following idea. So still in the United States and in most of Europe, I think, the stereotypic couple is a heterosexual couple. Of course, they're homosexual couples. They're single head of household families. But let's for the moment consider a stereotypic heterosexual couple with small children. It's still the case also that typically, the man earns more than the woman, and also typically, but not always, the woman has a slightly higher preference for spending time with the children compared to the man. So individual households of this very sort of stereotypic kind that I'm describing, sitting around their kitchen table, deciding how to cope with the pandemic, many people are unemployed, schools are closed and the kids are home, they make the following the decision. They say, well, the man is going to keep participating in the labor market and the woman is going to stay home with the kids. And, of course, each of them is free to make the decisions that are best for their own family. But when you aggregate that up to the population level, what you may have is a regression in women's labor market participation. We may undo 10 to 20 years of progress in terms of women participating in the labor market as a consequence of an infectious disease that struck us.
3: Will the pandemic change human nature? Will it make us kinder to each other? Will it make us distrust each other? What's it gonna do to us?
1: I don't fundamentally think that this pandemic is gonna change human nature for a number of reasons, including the fact that we have co-evolved with epidemic disease for millennia. I think what we're seeing right now is that the great force of a deadly germ is meeting the enduring reality of our social nature. And in fact, what the germ is doing is it's exploiting some of our deepest-seated, evolved social capacities, our desire to touch and hug each other, our desire to live together in groups, our desire to have friends and form social networks, our desire to cooperate, our desire to meet in order to share information. And the germ exploits this. In fact, you might even say is that the spread of germs is the price we pay for the spread of ideas. We come together in order to share information and work together, and the germ is exploiting exactly that capacity. But the irony is that it is exactly the spread of ideas and our capacity to cooperate that will allow us to combat the germ and to repel this invader that is seeking to tear us apart.
3: Nicholas Christakis, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me.
3: You can
2: read a fascinating essay that Nicholas Christakis wrote for The Economist's by invitation section on why COVID is different from other pandemics and how to respond. Go to economist.com/byinvitation. That's two words, by-invitation, where you can find his commentary. So Natasha, are these vaccines really a stepping stone towards normality or some form of normality?
3: Well, I mean, a vaccine is the stepping stone to normality. We do need better testing. We need better drugs. But it's been plain to me as a sort of vaccine uh, that this would be our route out. I'm not saying it's an easy route. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet. I'm not saying it's all going to happen at once. But it's necessary but not sufficient to have these vaccines. But yes, they are our first stepping stone back to normality.
2: Natasha Loader, thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much, Kenneth.
2: And our thanks also to Andrew Pillard, Kath Green, and Teresa Lamb. While you're with us and before you go, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really matters a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukye, and in London, rolling up my sleeve in anticipation, this is The Economist.